Masters for Hire podcast. My name is Clay and I will be your usual host. Each week we discuss different role-playing games, systems or methods of improving your gameplay. And this week I have with me Liam. Hello. Yet again. How are you this week, Liam? Yeah, I'm alright, Clay. How are you going? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. So, it's been a little bit of a hiatus for us. Yeah, it has. Um, three weeks? About that. Yeah, yeah. three, four weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, you know, good old-fashioned scheduling issues. But we're back. We never went away. And we're going to continue talking about mm-hmm. world-building. This is the final thing that we'll kind of say about world-building. What we intend on doing this time is... Well, first I'd like to cover off a few things that weren't brought up in the last two okay. uh, that I feel is worth talking about. Um, and then we'll jump straight into... Uh, what we said we would do, which was to fully realise the um, game world that you started talking about yep. last time. So I'll just guess I'll kind of kick off by covering a few simple things. Everything we talk about in this three-part series, these aren't definitive methods of doing anything. Right. More the, like principles? Principles or ideas, yeah. uh, methodologies, uh, ways you can just approach things. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't feel like if you've got a good thing going, you need to change anything. If you're the kind of person who can just create stuff on the fly and make it all fit together neatly, mm-hmm. keep doing it. That's a talent you've got there. Keep on going. But equally, there's three different types of worlds that you're likely to ever create, or a mesh between these three. Mm-hmm. There's a fourth one that I'll touch on briefly, but it's nowhere near as interesting as the other two. One's the one we talked about all the time, which was creating a world from scratch. Mm-hmm. Pretty self-explanatory there as to what we mean. Yep. The other way you can apply these methods is through application of those methods to a pre-existing world, which is the other one we've kind of covered off. Mm-hmm. The third one, the third main world that you can look at developing is taking something real world and then putting your own spin on it or inventing your own place which is what we're doing here today that has a few unique challenges a few things that you need to do um which the other two don't by the very their very nature Mm -hmm. if you're basing something in the real world do your research is what i would say yeah get out there and actually read about if you can't visit and understand everything there is you can understand about that place. Just by changing the way you describe people or their behaviours or their accents or the way they treat people, mm-hmm. that will just breathe life into your worlds. The fourth and final one, the one that I find generally least interesting, is a 100% real-world game. In which yep. case, you just need to be 100% on your research and don't deviate away from what, the is, norm- reality. what is reality. And... I'm kind of yet to play a game where that is fun. Mm-hmm. That said, let's jump into where we left off. Yep. So, just a quick recap. What is this place that you've kind of been tossing about? So, this place is a place called Bathurst Harbour. It's a place in the southwest of Tasmania, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um Small town, small fishing, logging town, um, reasonably isolated, and has a slight air of 
Innsmouth or Welcome to Night Vale, a place of mystery and wonder. <laughs> Within that, we kind of worked out a bit of a high school mm -hmm. sort of situation, and that's kind of where we ended up getting to. We did a few other things. Yeah. We, we covered off the political groups that were likely back in town, started to piece together a bit of an idea of the population, that sort of thing. A lot of these different bits and pieces don't need to be dealt with in absolutes, though. Mm. Whilst occasionally a player might be, oh, how many people live here? I mean, a sign at the end of town, edge of town might say 2,000, but, I mean, there's not too, exactly 2,000 no. people here at any given time. So, we had a bit of an idea about the population, which was... Uh, yeah, about 2,000. About 2,000. Which, it is worthwhile saying for where we are located, that's considered a medium-sized town. Yeah, it is. Mm. Where... The capital city here contains... In Australia, it's about... No, 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 in Hobart. In, Ho so in Hobart Tasmania. Itself, Tasmania. Hobart has 30... Uh, no, 300,000 people in the greater Hobart area. Approximately. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't seem like very many people, but for the place that you're setting it in, this is actually quite large. Yeah. Which causes its own kind of flow-on effects, if mm. we're looking from a top-down perspective. It actually would weigh on the landscape, yeah. in a way. The politics of the place would actually impact wider-ranging communities. Mm -hmm. So, at this point, when you realise that, you need to decide what, what kind of level you want this game to be set at. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be a grassroots thing, where people are, say, young or uninvolved initially, or, or is it something like a top-down perspective where the players already have political power and are making decisions? Um, my personal... Personally, my preferred way of doing something like that would be from a grassroots perspective. I find that that leads to, at least as far as I can see, more and... more character development and... Uh, Kind of more freedom in the players' books. They're able to fit into whatever slot the story kind of progresses them towards or what they feel like they want to do. Mm. I don't, personally, I don't think that's necessarily the case. But if that's how you're looking to run this place, the intent of your location is just as important as the location itself. So if mm. you're intending on running grassroots game that should adjust what is the priorities for yourself to build. Mm. Because you're not going to necessarily going to have to worry about the wide-ranging implications of individual actions, mm. beyond the general idea of there are these large companies in the area, yeah. uh, which I believe we established was fishing and logging were the two. Yeah, they were the two. Ones. And also a university. Utahs. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So the university. Um, beyond that, Apart from players messing around with that, they're not really necessarily going to cause far-reaching problems, would you say? Yeah, I'd okay. agree with that. Cool. So, given that we've got this place, we've got a bit of an idea of what they're likely to be doing there, mm -hmm. what challenges would affect this place? What challenges does this particular section of the world face? What is the antagonistic drive? Within this part of the world, I feel like uh, force of nature villains 
villains, well, not necessarily villains, but entities or concepts that... Threats. Threats, yeah. Threats are a better word. That act as a force of nature, that act as a powerful, unnatural and uncaring driver. Mm -hmm. uh, Quite powerful for players to go against. Mm -hmm. So, how do you feel about the idea then that those kind of things lend to players a sense of generally powerlessness? Given the way I like to run my games, I'm kind of comfortable with that idea. I know some other GMs may not be, mm-hmm. but every so often in my games, I do I do aim to have my players feel a little bit powerless. Like, there are some things that are just outside of their control. Mm-hmm. I think that adds a bit more realism into the gaming experience, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're, you're really kind of making it fairly easy for yourself, then. Mm. As a GM, kind of want to make it as easy as possible. But that being said, I also want to have enough leeway for players to throw in what they want to do mm-hmm. and their own plots. Alright. So, meshing the bottom up stuff now. So, this will mm. be the things the players most likely interact with. Yeah. Where would you probably kick them off? I'd probably kick them off at the end of high school. Mm-hmm. They're coming maybe out of year 10 or year 12 and the main thing they want to do is look for a job they're not the main thing that they don't want to do is leave the town this is where their family is it's a place they know Mm -hmm. but around this place is several key industries that they can get involved with so that would be kind of their i guess first story first mission to get a job and to begin integrating in kind of the wider political net. Okay. So the things that you're most likely going to need to build up from a bottom-up perspective, what do you think mm-hmm. those would be? Uh, the Their connections, the businesses around town, although that's weaving a little bit into the top. Not really, because you've got to bear in mind that bottom-up is all about the perspective of things from that ground level. Mm. Which means that if these people have a particular opinion about the logging industry, say, let's say the greeny, the, yeah. the, the green-leaning uh, individual in the party thinks that the logging operations in the area are wasteful, environmentally destructive, they'll have the complete different opinion to the son of a logger who yeah. knows that that's the family business and that's where they're going to go. So having that understanding of where these um, social world-building elements, even yeah. though they're low-level stuff, knowing where that fits in, it's going to be mm-hmm. really important for you. Yeah, definitely. So that would probably be where I'd be looking to fold in the top-down world-building and the bottom-up world-building. So the nice middle ground for you yeah. is... You're probably only probably looking at maybe fifteen percent of top down stuff. You're only looking yeah. at a tiny amount of it. Because the players are likely to be so young, they're not really gonna have the opportunity to really sink their teeth into that mm. stuff, at least for a while. Yep. And by that point you'll already have established uh, different party norms. So everyone's yep. gonna be behaving in certain ways and that allows you as a, as a game master to develop those areas and, yep. and change Definitely. them and mould them so it's actually still interesting for the group. Mm-hmm. 
which make, makes your bottom-up stuff even more important. Yes, definitely. So, the businesses. Understanding perceptions, understanding what people kind of are doing, understanding mm-hmm. the small cliques, understanding the small groups mm-hmm. that are driving these people and where they're from and what they do. Yep. Ascribing them to people is the easiest way, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all member of the same sports team or they're all, you know, related somehow through their parents or grandparents or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Is frequently a good way of dealing with that. Or alternatively, giving completely free reign and having just circumstances draw them together. Mm. D&D style. Yeah. Mm. So, in your case, could mm-hmm. do you think that you could just drop a player into this place at the moment and expect them to just run around and get things done? I would expect them to do to do that yes um whether or not they take the initiative to do so or whether they're looking for uh maybe an easier route Mm -hmm. changes the perspective on what i'm doing Mm -hmm. if they're looking to run around and get involved with the world and the game that makes in some ways my job easier because i'm relying on the notes and so on Mm -hmm. however let me put it like this um Mm -hmm. If the player writes a short backstory prior to the game starting, where they say that they were in the Surf Lifesaving Club, Mm -hmm. they're fairly physically fit, um, that they work in mum and dad's shop on the weekends to make some pocket money, and they're not a fantastic student, but they're okay. Mm Even in those few short sentences, you're already going to grab some things that are going to affect your world building. So one thing to yep. bear in mind is that your players' backstories in this case, even if they can't comment specifically on the nature of the world, will actually change the world itself in order yep. to make it fit in. And the, it's one of the unique things about role-playing games is that you might be the storyteller or the world builder or the DM, but the players themselves have as much say in how the place all comes together. And yeah, Mm. you can sit down with each player and go, oh, you know, look, you could only have come from this background or done this thing or the other. And one thing we're going to talk about in the later podcast is player agency Mm. and why that's really important. If you're doing that to your player and saying that your world is static and unchanging, you're doing yourself a disservice and I think you're doing your players a disservice. I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. Alright, so what we might do from here is just cut to our mid uh, midpoint music and just for our break. Mm-hmm. And for this week, we have Chemical Imbalance by Neighbourhood Void. Tone and dopamine, you'll always get the best. 
Chemical Imbalance by Neighbourhood Void. So where we left off, basically, was that we had this place, this town, where we've engaged in top-down world-building, we've engaged further, a lot further in bottom-up. We know what the place is like. We know, we're know we more than happy to adjust our worldview based on what it is that our players are doing, and we're willing to adjust the game style as well based on mm -hmm. our, what our players want to do, which is an important thing. But... What are the players going to do? What mm. do you intend on having them do in this place? That is just as important a world-building consideration for role-playing games as it is any of these other considerations we've had. Yeah, very much so. Take um, writing a book, for example. That's something you don't have to think about because you're yeah. in control of everything. Yep. Your player could turn around and say, for these particular reasons, I'm going to stab the other player or go rogue or do a different <laughs> thing. It, you don't have that element of control. The story's not 100% your own. In fact, in yeah. many respects, the story's theirs, not yours. Mm -hmm. So, painting in broad strokes here, what is it you want them to do? For me, it would depend on which job they got. So, starting off with the job storyline, they go somewhere. Maybe they go into logging. Mm -hmm. um, within logging, you play with different ideas. Maybe they come across some strange animal that they've never seen before and maybe no one in the team's seen before. And the rest of the people consider it to be something that's pretty normal. But, you know, as a player, you want to investigate it a bit more. So, how do you go about that? What do you do? And what is the end point when you finally discover what this thing is? Mm. So, basically... A discovery game where the end goal is not for there to be necessarily an end goal. Yeah, mm. or maybe a storyline like that. But also equally before, we were talking about protagonists. Mm. Protagonists are important in storylines just because of the nature of narrative and because of how humans are kind of trained to expect a story. Yeah. Given left to our own devices, we're so used to that story, the story of the threat, the story of the other, in, the other, basically. Yeah. If this is, if you want to read up on it, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, uh, check that book out. It's going to basically show you how we've, all of humanity has been telling the same story forever. Mm -hmm. We'll leave that alone for now, but to be honest, it's true. People expect these protagonists. How would you deliver them in this place? 
As in the protect the hero of. No, you don't need to worry about the hero. Oh, sorry, antagonist. I said protagonist. I mean antagonist. Because what is it that's going to drive the players? What's going yeah. to be their obstacle that needs to be overcome? You can say environmental and investigative things, of course, but personality and mm-hmm. the idea of being driven against a competing ideology or a competing individual. Yep. Do you plan on delivering something like that here? I would because I feel like that's something that makes the world more full. Mm-hmm. For example, if you're in the logging or fishing industry, mm-hmm. the main things that you're going to be coming up against is, as you said before, the greenies or the more environmentally conscious individuals, those mm-hmm. that act in not necessarily more environmentally righteous ways but who are pushing a different agenda Mm. and how you deal with them as players whether you resort immediately to violence or whether you try to talk your way out of the situation matters Mm. so but uh, given that it is a town you're likely to have players with different ideology Mm. that means that in your case it's very likely that players will be each each other's other's antagonist yes Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's Good. Mm-hmm. I found that some of the most fun I've had in games, both as a DM and as a player, have been when players are getting together and resolving intra-party conflict mm-hmm. and intra-party ideologies. Okay. That does have its own unique problems, and again, that's probably mm-hmm. something that we will cover off at a later date. But... Um, are you actually going to establish any outer forces then? Um, some. Uh, in terms of outer forces outside of the town. Um, or even alien forces. It doesn't necessarily need to be the town. If there's a town of 2,000 people, it must be semi-functional to even yep. be on the map, right? Yeah. Well, in this case, it'd be, once again, using the logging industry as an example, they would have their own discrete storyline that is tied to the idea of fairies and the fairy rings and what happens if people stay out in the forest for too long. Mm-hmm. So playing some with some, um, whilst more European ideas and European stories, trying to weave that in with the Australian Aboriginal understanding of the Dreamtime and Australian Aboriginal story and mythology. Okay. So... These are what I would classify as alien threats yeah, to the Yeah, definitely alien threats. Mm. The same thing would be if they're, for example, they're in the fishing industry and they're likely to come across strange beings the, or yeah, Cthulhu- Cthulhu-like yeah. monstrosities out in the ocean. Yeah. The thing about alien-based things is it creates a immediate us-them. Yeah. Uh... In D&D, the good example for that is um, the good old-fashioned orcs or goblins that you mm-hmm. run into as early-level characters. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, it doesn't matter really what they say or how they act. You're going to kill them anyway. Yeah, probably. To take Call of Cthulhu, the, the actual role-playing game, cultists. Yep. Being given an enemy that 
has no sense of uh, diplomacy or capability of being reasoned with mm-hmm. is a long-standing trope in role-playing games. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, are you going to play around with that trope at all, or I would change people's um, perceptions of what yeah. they should be doing? I would certainly do that. Um, once again, taking the long- logging industry and the, those European stories, maybe some of the loggers know about these fairies that come and steal people away, and so they leave gifts. Maybe a saucer of milk, in the case of the Scottish brownie, or a dead animal that they've killed and scun and prepared for these fairies. So it's a case of you can fight them, you can sacrifice them, but you can also re-sacrifice to them, rather. Mm -hmm. But you can also reason with them. And that reasoning part should be, I think, more difficult, Mm -hmm. but should also be a valid option. Mm -hmm. So, because this is something as well, you've got to have scalability of threat with with things. If your threat is a equal, then the amount of force you're capable of bringing to the situation as an equal should be sufficient. Yep. Right, like if you're fighting, in the case of World of Darkness, a werewolf when you're a werewolf, you're both more or less capable of the same thing. So it's, yep, it's a heads up as to who's actually going to kind of come out better off. But when you're coming up against the alien and the strange, it could be anything. You're going to mm. have to pull out all the stops. Yeah. So the same thing should apply across the board. Some things might be easier to reason with than others, yep. of course. But. If someone has to put in a extraordinary amount of effort to destroy something physically, mm-hmm. then they there should be a commensurate amount of effort to deal with that thing socially. socially. Not necessarily all the time, but yeah. in terms of rewarding players for given conduct. Mm-hmm. And then you've also got the outright outthinking the problem, which yeah. should, I believe, always be rewarded. So if mm-hmm. a player does come up with a solution to the problem that you haven't thought of, and it'll happen. Guys, yep. it will happen all the damn time. You've done it several times in games that we've played. Mm-hmm. You've just all outthought my problems. And you've got two choices. You can get angry, mm-hmm. or you can be congratulatory. And yep. congratulatory always works out better. Always. Yep. In my opinion. So, yeah, these threats that exist in the background, those will get flushed out, of course. And mm-hmm. then because you're going to have a bit of time to prep, you can work out what it is that players are going to most likely interact with once they give you character sheets. Yep. Um, and a little bit of a bio about themselves. Yep. And then one thing follows another, and you could just dump a playgroup in this game. Yep. And heck, I'll tell you what we might do, and I know I mentioned this previously, let's run a one-off game. Yep. And uh, just one session, it was accelerated time frame, punch, pump some players in, and um, whilst you're not joining me next time, I've got a different guest coming on. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, we might just quickly cover off at the start of next uh, podcast about how that went. Yep. Or the one after, if you're flat out. You know, we'll, we'll, be able uh, to do it. we'll uh, see what we can do mm-hmm. in this place. And we'll have a quick chat about what you might have learnt from that experience as well. Yep, definitely. Awesome. Sounds like a good plan. Great, I'm going to pencil you in. Yeah. So, 
that is going to about wrap us up on world building. Mm-hmm. There is a whole raft of documentation, a whole collection of different thought processes and ideas on how you can best cover this off. I would advise for anyone starting out to keep it simple. Don't try and do anything too crazy. By all means, do whatever you want in your world. Build whatever it is that you you want to do. Put a bunch of uh, wizards on a spacecraft and shoot them off to another nebula. Hey, I've done it. And uh, see what your game can do. But the thing that will save you the most time and effort and give your players the most enjoyable game is throwing that effort in. And if you do need to make up NPCs on the spot or you do need to do things like that, please try and make them be as rounded or as deep as possible. Mm. As long as you're doing that and covering things off, and using different methods that overlap with one another, like top and top down, bottom up world building, mm-hmm. I guarantee you, you will improve the game that you run. Definitely. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again. I um, thanks for having me. Anytime. Now over to you. The quote for this week is: "Deceiver, I have been set to a holy task." How many holes? <laughs>